You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Tony, what's going on, man? Where you been at? I haven't seen you. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we, we brought in some deep fake phonies and some booze bots on a 1099, but I'm back, baby. Yeah, man, I, I could tell they were a little robotic. But I'm scanning your drink menu here, and I discovered one that I never knew existed called the Getaway. How'd you come up with that one? Yeah, man, while I was away, chilling on the beach, I made some easy drinks. I think you'll like them. Cool, man. What's in it? Two and a half ounces of tequila, half ounce triple sec, half ounce of lemon juice, shake it up, put it in a cup of ice, top it with some ginger ale. Easy. Nice. Yeah, man, for being that easy, it does taste good. Thank you, sir. Speaking of getaway, I got to get away down to the other end of the bar. All right, Chris, we'll see you next round, buddy. I'm here with one of the world's leading cybersecurity experts, developer of the Metasploit framework, founder of the Metasploit project, and also known for his work in Warvox, Axeman, the Sonar project, and now focused on his most recent project, Rumble Network Discovery. Referred to as the industry's most famous white hat hacker, HD Moore joins me at the bar. HD, welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your hacking saga. Would you mind telling me a little bit how you initially got into hacking? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up pretty poor, so you know it took me a long time, but I finally built some computers out of dumpster parts. And um, you know, my mom had a job as a medical transcriptionist, which you know doesn't pay very much, but had the upside of having a lot of phone lines. So she would, uh, you know, clock off work at 6 p.m. and, you know, everyone else would go to sleep around 9 or 10. And I'd plug in my, you know, ghetto 486 into as many phone lines as I could and dial the world as much, <laughs> however I could. And that was kind of the start of it. So I started off with, you know, we're dialing and freaking and BBSs. And, you know, when the Internet became a thing, started moving kind of into the Internet space. And then, you know, I joined IRC and the rest was pretty much history. Nice. And at that point, I mean, it was still fairly new, right? There wasn't many people out there doing that. So what inspired you? Who inspired you? Did you read a book? Did you see something on TV? Like what really sparked your interest there? Oh, it was a ton of stuff. Um, you know, Legion of Doom, uh, Masters of Deception, kind of all the old school, like, um, you know, freaking hacking, uh, uh, those books for sure. I mean, it's just amazing to me that you could explore the entire world from your living room or, you know, from your basement or from your closet, like wherever you happen to be. It's just, it was such a, like, amazing thing to me that all it took was knowing the magic numbers of a phone number or later on an IP address to go all the way around the world and talk to some random system in the middle of nowhere you've never seen before. So for being a, you know, a poor kid in Texas with, you know, not a lot of access to anything else, that was just mind blowing to me and just really sucked me in. Gotcha. What are some of the hacks that you're most proud of or particularly interesting ones that you can legally admit to? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. Um, there's lots of really cool vulnerabilities out there, and I like them all for different reasons, right? Um, I think probably the exploit I spent most of my time on, which is in retrospect a really easy bug, but at the time was just kind of like when I finally was able to like get remote code execution running on Windows properly, was the old um, Apache uh, chunking coding bug on the Win32 platform. Um, I remember like my first exploit was this crappy pile of like Perl scripts that shoved 50 megabytes of data into memory on the remote host and just jumped randomly trying to find it. And then that's where it started off. And I finally got better at that. I was like, oh, wow, you can use a pop pop red or you can use this or use that. So that for me kind of like 
unlocked in my brain the ability to actually start doing RCE bugs and start moving to like heap exploits and all kinds of fun stuff then, uh, SEH and all that kind of stuff back then, back when exploits were easy, I guess, compared to these days. These days, they're crazy hard. I don't know how anyone does, that, does exploit dev anymore. It's all like heap grooming and mitigation bypass. Like, I just like to write code, man. So I don't know. It's it's a very different world today. And I have a lot of respect for folks who can keep up with the crazy hijinks required to do exploit dev these days. Yeah. Do you do any any exploit dev right now still or on a side at all? A little bit. I mean, I play around with anytime I get a new piece of hardware, I take it apart, I dump firmware, I go through bins, I do all like, you know, the normal stuff just for kicks. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of half disassembled stuff in my workbench and kind of poke at it where I can. And I don't know, I like logic bugs though. Like the stuff that I find most fun is, you know, information leaks that you can slowly get, you know, take a whole bunch of different information leaks and build them up into something that actually turns into RCE or it's like credential leaks or bypass. Like I, I like a lot of the logic stuff better, I think, because one, it's quicker to getting to what you want to do, which is to get a shell on the thing. You're not spending, you know, two weeks of your life grooming a heap trying to get things to work just right. Like I find that stuff just super frustrating. So for me, being able to actually do something is great. And I always cared more about like data access or logical access to an application, much more so than did I get root or not. That all seems secondary to what the goal of the thing you're doing is, right? So for folks who kind of do a lot of pen testing, you know, root or even DA is not always the goal. It's usually the goal is like, well, I need to get into the CDE or I need to get access to this particular data on this particular server or this particular network. And that's not always root, right? So being very focused on what your end goals are and working on exploits and past exploitation that take you to that goal, even though it's not necessarily the, you know, the sexy remote perfect heap exploit, <laughs> I guess that's kind of where I get excited. So you've inspired countless security professionals in the world today. Who has been the most influential people to you personally as you came up in the industry? That's a lot of folks. I mean, when I was growing up, like uh, there's this huge, this giant generation in front of me that I always looked up to that mostly weren't very nice to me when I was a kid because I was like the annoying kid. I was asking like, Hey, can I get a, you know, send me that SH exploit or send me this thing or Hey, where's the latest TSO wares or whatever. Right. So, I mean, I, I grew up kind of looking up to the ADM crew and um, you know, LSDPL, uh, those four guys, team TSO, of course, uh, woo woo, uh, all those folks. Right. So early on, there's a lot of folks that were, you know, really influential and helped me kind of get into programming and kind of just get my, get my start. Like Tim Newsham was also a hero of mine. Um, Dan Farmer, of course, for working on Satan in the first you know, early on. It was really nice working with him again on IPMI stuff recently or semi recently. Yeah, a lot of folks kind of from that era for sure uh, that I looked up to and just thought were like, you know, gods. And later on, getting to know, um, you know, Theodore better, getting to know other folks who do a lot of software development, meeting Marty Roche in the Snort field, like with the Snort project back then before it became Sourcefire. Um, it was just really cool kind of like growing up among those folks, but I always felt like the the noob and the the young kid in those scenarios. I was always like just a couple years younger than everybody else and I always felt like I was just behind the curve and where I wanted to be. So it was frustrating, but it was also cool kind of watching them all do amazing things and, you know, trying my best to make my dent in the world too. Yeah. And I'm sure it carved that path for you. And, and whereas if they didn't come before you, it's like, it's uncharted territory at that point. <laughs> and, and you got to have someone to be able to follow, I think, to be able to, to steer you in, in one way or another. So you created Metasploit in 2003. How did that project come about? Um, it was a lot of stuff happening at the same time. Like uh, early 2000s is when all the old school like hacking groups like, you know, Teso, LSD, et cetera, right, kind of disbanded or at least gone completely private. Folks were less willing to share the exploits that they worked on publicly anymore because there's a huge commercial demand for them. Like even doing security testing, you lived and died by available exploits. Like if you went into a bank and they said, okay, you know, I have this vulnerable server. How come you couldn't break into it? You couldn't just tell them, well, I didn't have an exploit because it wasn't cool enough. Like I didn't know the right people in IRC. That's literally how things worked back then. Like you either wrote it yourself or you had a buddy that give it to you. So it was right around the time when we went from being really kind of a, you know, underground focused and friend based and community based to being much more commercial. 
So around that time frame is when you know Core Security launched their Impact product, the first kind of commercial pen testing tool that actually had exploits in it. That was kind of an inspiration to me as far as like having a actual clean toolkit you could use. So at the time I was working at an MSP where I was running the red team and our tools were just a big hodgepodge of all kinds of stuff. We had a bunch of scripts we wrote ourselves. We had a bunch of slightly modified tools from other places. And back then what drove me crazy was like, hey, I've got this exploit, but it's a bind shell and I need a reverse shell. Um, or this one's hard coded for this, but I need to change out the target, but that breaks the character set. And therefore I can't use it because it, you know, have to re-encode the whole shell code again from scratch. And there's also a time frame when Windows shellcode was absolutely terrible in 2001, 2002. I mean, the smallest shellcode was uh, from Windows for remote shell was uh, by a gentleman named High-Speed uh, high Junkie out of Japan. It was like 750 bytes. It was huge. And of course, I think Halvor had like a 380-byte one, but he hadn't like shared it publicly then. So there, the shellcode itself and exploitation techniques, the coding mechanisms, it was all you know pretty early on um, as far as like building exploits. So. The idea behind Metasploit is how do we standardize all the tools that my team is using? Uh, how do we make it so you can just swap out payloads reliably and quickly, which meant building out new encoders, new shellcode encoders, new um, you know, NOPS-led generators, things like that. So we've kind of just took the, uh, the challenge of building exploits and broken down to as many small pieces as possible and made those modules. And then you kind of build them, put them back together again like Legos to build whatever exploit you wanted. So you've got your actual attack here, but then you've got your NOP encoder, you've got your payload, you've got your um, obfuscation tools at the protocol level, all kinds of stuff. So it started off being an internal toolkit. The company worked for it decided they didn't have, they wanted no part of it. They didn't particularly like the fact I worked on it. They wouldn't admit to our clients that I worked there because they thought it was shady. So uh, we had a lot of financial services customers back then. Uh, so I didn't get a lot of support from my employer at the time, which is fine because I, I was going to do it anyway. So uh, I ended up spending nights and weekends for the next, you know, pretty much 15 years <laughs> on Metasploit until a couple of years ago. I, said, I took a break just to, uh, you know, spend more time on other things. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. I felt like uh, it was really cool because it was a, the cool thing about Metasploit, the thing that I'm, I guess, more proud of is like, yeah, the code is pretty much crap most of the time. Like most of the code is absolute garbage. It started up being this big bucket of Perl code that no one liked, that everyone thought was a script pretty tool. But what we did is anytime a new technique came out that we thought was really cool, we'd implement that, we'd add it to Metasploit, and then it'd be preserved as this functional historical artifact you can actually still use. So if you have a cool way to do shellcode evasion, great. You can cool protocol evasion. We'll actually build that into the protocol stack. And now you can use it with every single exploit use that protocol. Um, so it's a great way to like take the knowledge of the security community and build on it and make it something that you can actually just reuse and, and keep build, building on making better, I guess. And when we did the rewrite in Ruby, it made it a little bit better, made it cleaner. But with uh, the acquisition by Metasploit, we had a much bigger team, a lot more funding. We can actually support a lot more of that stuff. And we had to showcase more and more of the community's really cool research. So for me, it was always kind of a, a living museum that was also useful of all the cool work the community was doing. So you still have Metasploit. Now I'm used to seeing Metasploit in Kali Linux. You still have the commercialized version. And I also see with SANS and other InfoSec courses, even the OSCP, you always see Metasploit within the curriculum. In terms of education, is it still important to teach tools like Metasploit or should courses be more tool agnostic? Um, I think it's good, especially if you... Um a lot of stuff Metasploit hasn't aged well. Things like particular types of shellcode or exploit techniques. Like you're not going to do an SEH overwrite these days because all the mitigations prevent it from being useful. Like you really don't use pop pop ret style return addresses anymore. So all the tooling around that doesn't really work anymore. Um, all the stuff we did in the opcode database is no longer relevant because the ASLR changed all the base addresses. So there's a lot of stuff that really stopped being useful in Metasploit, but the there are a lot of things that are still useful, though. For example, um, you can take an exploit that's 10 years old and still bypass modern today IDS systems just by tweaking a couple options. Like the evasion capabilities and the protocol levels, like we implemented SMB from scratch, both in Perl and then again in Ruby, just like the impact folks did in the Python side for core impact and for uh, community canvas. 
Um, and in doing so, it gave us a lot of ways to mangle the protocol and tweak things in ways that was really hard for anybody to decode properly on the wire. So as far as an evasion toolkit, if you're building a defensive tool, like Metasploit is still really useful for testing your system, for showing like, you know, making sure you can decode protocols properly, detect attacks properly. And because it's open-ended, because you can plug almost anything into it, um, if there is a technique in there that you want to reuse, whether it's a particular type of payload or exploit or evasion method, or you want to use the interpreter payload, but you want to use it for phishing instead of for an exploit, it's all there for you. So I feel like even though parts of Metasploit have definitely aged out a bit and are less useful these days, they're still kind of a historical archive, but the rest of it still is useful for day-to-day -day stuff. Like all the discovery, network protocol discovery and enumeration and information gathering stuff and you know login brute forcing in Metasploit, that's relevant forever. Those protocols just don't change. Um, so even today, like, there's a lot of really cool stuff in Metasploit that actually inspired me to go work on Rumble in the first place. A lot of the discovery models we did in Metasploit never really made it anywhere else. Like all the cool NetBIOS discovery stuff we did for identifying secondary network interfaces, I'd never seen another tool do prior to Metasploit and very few even after that. So that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to go after Rumble and tackle network discovery as well. Got it. So yeah, I, I noticed that you're really focused on Rumble now. Could you explain this initiative and its focus? Sure, yeah. Um, so one thing that... Uh, you know, working on security products and pen tests for the last 20 years, the very first thing you do in every single network is, okay, what do you have? Give me your scope. What's your IP space? Okay, now that I know your IPs, what's actually on your network? What are your devices? And those two components never really got any easier. Like even in like 2021 now, like you still have to do a lot of work to figure out what someone's networks actually are. And so what was driving me crazy was like, okay, we go into this new pen test, we're doing a new customer, we don't have credentials or anything, we need to quickly figure out what's on the network, what's connected, what these devices are. There weren't really any good tools for it. What we saw is that on the IT side, all the tools for doing discovery were based on authenticated discovery. You had to give them your you know, Active Directory credentials, your SNP, your SSH, your Cisco C-like uh, credentials. On the security side, everyone was using their vulnerability scanning tools as their inventory. So the way you figured out what was on the network, you ran nests against it. Well, what if you couldn't run nests against that segment? Well, you, you knew it's there, but you didn't really have a good inventory of it. So it's this weird kind of quarter case where if you're trying to do unauthenticated discovery of a network, um, you really had no good tools for it because everything was designed to either be credential-based or security scanning-based. And the security tools were really terrible at providing inventory, and the IT tools were really terrible at telling you anything about a device they couldn't authenticate to. And you know, there's definitely lots of scenarios where you don't want to sling your credentials around the network. I mean, there's a lot of fun tools out there like Responder, Flamingo, that if you run it on a device during a pen test and someone runs Nessus against it, you capture Nessus's credentials. Like, <laughs> there's lots of ways to shoot yourself in the foot when you're doing authenticated scanning. So the whole idea behind Rumble is like, let's give people a really quick way to drop an agent or use a CLI scanner in and quickly identify the entire network you know, with a very low amount of traffic. So active scan base, but without knocking things over. And that required doing a custom scan engine, um, our own SIN scanner, our own protocol application pros, fingerprinting, et cetera. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been about it's about two and a half years so far in Rumble. Um, we're you know actually have three employees now. We're we've got a fourth on the way. We've got uh, a big hiring plan for the year. We've got a bunch of customers. Um, so we're doing well. We're we're actually paying our bills now, which is nice after two years. Nice. That's that's great. So what are your future plans for the company? Where would you like to ultimately take it? Well, I mean, there's definitely two parts to it. There's one is like, what's impact we want to have in the industry and the community? And part of that has been really uh, focusing on making sure, even though the core of the software is closed source, that all of our fingerprints are mostly open source. So we have about a little over, a little, uh, I guess a little less than half these days of our fingerprints in, in Rumble are actually part of the open source Recog project. Uh, Recog is fun because it's a project that's technically is run by Rapid7. It started off being the fingerprints for the Nexpose product. We brought it in Metasploit, made it Metasploit's fingerprinting system. When I worked on the project Sonar, we shoved all the internet scan data into it and used that to basically uh, expand the fingerprint coverage. And then now that I'm working on Rumble, we use the same database and contribute back to it for uh, Rumble fingerprinting as well, which is cool. It's basically just a big XML library of like matching regexes to device uh, signatures. Um, 
So if you're doing any kind of cool like networking operations work or port scanning work or anything where you want to quickly look up what type of devices based on its web page title or based on its HP server banner or SNB uh, OID, you can use the you know, the recog databases for that. And they're under a really wide open license and it's great. So hopefully we'll help the whole community get better at doing fingerprinting by doing that and convince people there's more need for doing just basic inventory across the networks. On the commercial side, we really just want to uh, help our customers quickly identify what's on the network and be able to search their network quickly. So we have a search-based interface so folks can say, okay, I've been scanning my network you know, every day for a couple months. Uh, find me every SolarWinds Orion box like that. And that's one of the things we quickly do for clients. Or for the zero login vulnerability, um, find me all my domain controllers no matter where they are. And if you're a large university, you may have 80 different domain controllers all in different labs, all part of different domains because you've got so many different you know, units across the organization. We try to help folks who are doing lots of M&A. So healthcare, for example, you'll have like a big hospital buy a bunch of clinics. When they go into those clinics for the first time, they don't have credentials or anything. They can't log in any device that they wanted to. So instead, they'll like RDP into a Windows box using like temporary system, or you send a Raspberry Pi in with a Rumble agent on it, use that to do all their initial discovery, and then build it up from there. So I think there's lots of really cool stuff we can do to help kind of push the industry forward on asset inventory discovery and really making uh, network-connected asset information more visible to everybody. Another part of that is just identifying topology and topology problems. Um, like for example, because we take all these really cool techniques for like multi-host, we can pull the MAC address of a device like 15 different ways across multiple hops. So we can often tell people like what the MAC address of the device is, even though we can't directly query the device. So an example there would be, you've got a subnet full of like Windows machines and they all have firewalls enabled. So most tools are gonna tell you jack squat about them because they can't measure them, they can't really ping scan them, they might get ISMP, that's about it. But Rumble will actually say, oh, look, there's a printer on the same subnet and it's got default SNP. Let's dump the ARC cache of the printer and use that to match the MAC addresses back to the Windows host again. Then let's use the MAC address of each of those Windows hosts and then look at the hardware model. Then for the hardware model, we also have the manufacturing date on it. And based on this particular prefix of the MAC address, we know it's actually an Intel NUC. So going from like almost no knowledge about a device to knowing that it's an Intel NUC manufacturing last whatever, possibly running, you know, Windows just by querying a, a secondary system on the same subnet, I think is one of the cool things that we do. So there's lots of really cool research going into that. Like, I feel like we take the same approach to shellcode and exploits and vulnerability research, but we apply that towards device fingerprinting and asset inventory. <laughs> there's definitely a need for that, for sure. And, and I guess with that infrastructure, you can pull in different vulnerabilities from different systems too and kind of aggregate everything together. Yeah, and we're trying to away from like vulnerability detection or bone scanning. And it's really just about like presenting a database of facts to the customer, like here's your stuff. Uh, and we have a free tier, right? So every small business with less than 256 assets, uh, every home user, we've got a free binary for you, you got a command line scanner. So we're trying to do our best to take care of like folks who can't afford a big commercial inventory tool through a free tier. And there's very few differences between a free version and our paid version besides license or number of live assets across the network. So it's, it's great. We've got something like 3000 users in the free tier today, uh, scanning every possible weird kind of home network ever. Uh, we get everything from like clinical to healthcare to oil and gas, everything else in the platform. So it's really cool to see the stuff that comes in. And uh, of course, you know, the more folks using it, the better the fingerprints, the fingerprints get. Very cool. So you mentioned SolarWinds. So here at Barcode, we've been using SolarWinds for our DMS, our okay. drink management system. <laughs> and I just heard the news. So my question to you is, how screwed are we? I don't know. Um, I, I take a lot of these APT style reports with a grain of salt. Like, Everyone's making stuff up. They're all just doing attribution without a lot of evidence. Like none yeah. of this stuff would go through court. Like you can't prove any of this junk, right? All you can do is have lots of people pointing fingers in different directions and pick who you believe. It is what it is. I feel like, yeah, it looks like the evidence points to their supply chain getting hacked, so modifying the binaries of the application. And you know, a lot of us would like to say we would all do better if that was, you know, if we were there in their shoes, but we don't know how they got in the first place, right? <laughs> For all we know is an employee that just walked in and, and set them up. So it, it's hard to say. Like, you know. 
make sure you can respond to incidents. Like you can do your best to avoid them, but you also have to make sure that when something does happen, that you can quickly get on top of it, figure out the damage, see what data left your business, things like that. You got to be ready for it. You certainly have offensive security, ingenuity in your DNA and mentality for uncovering unorthodox attack methods. I'm curious to get your current thoughts on bug bounty programs. Are the good guys catching up to the bad guys or will it always be an unfair race? Once it comes down to incentive, right? There's still a lot more money to be made being evil <laughs> than being good, right? But there's also a lot more risk. And so the good thing about the bug bounty programs is as much as they annoy the heck out of a lot of people with people constantly hammering your security email address thing, I found a critical vulnerability. You don't have DKIM enabled. Like, I, I know that. It's cool. Like, <laughs> it's not a big deal. So there's a lot of folks on the, the bottom end of the bug bounty that are give the industry a bad reputation. But on the other side of it, it's amazing. Like, if you told me 20 years ago or you know 30 years ago in these days, because I'm getting old, that um, someone actually paid me money to hack a Fortune 500 company and I didn't need a letter in advance from the company to give me permission, I could just like straight up like start banging away on some company servers and that was totally cool and I wouldn't go to jail. Like, holy crap, that would make such a huge difference to the industry. Like, Imagine if like all the early hackers didn't have to worry about getting you know raided and busted and thrown in jail for the early exploration. I mean, it's it's like so I love it. I feel like um, bug bounties are great in terms of getting a lot more testing of a lot more systems a lot quicker, but they're also an amazing tool for making the community level up and become much better at security and hacking going forward. So I have no idea where we're gonna end up. We're gonna have like so many awesome hackers out there in the next ten years just because of bug bounties. Like I'm I'm very um, enthusiastic and optimistic about it as much as the the low end folks trying to report DKIM bugs to me drive me crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I saw they had like a million dollar bounty out. Um, I mean, you hit you hit one of these and you're set. You're good. Um, so that's another incentive that you know was unheard of. I guess even when bug bounty programs started rolling out, they never had that level of incentive. So you got what bug crowd hacker one now. Do you do you find one platform better than the other, or is it just a matter of preference? You definitely hear, you know, they've got two customers, right? They serve both the bug bounty testers and they serve the customers that are running the programs to them. So um, they both have their ups and downs. Like uh, uh, disclosure, I'm in, you know, uh, was an advisor for Bug Crowd for a while. Uh, I really like what they do. I like the team. I like how they approach things. Um, I feel like they do a much better job of taking care of the uh, bug bounty folks. Uh, sorry, the, the bug bounty programs are much more kind of white glove. I believe. I feel like they are much more hands on with the customer uh, that's running the program. Where I feel like Hacker One is much more hands on with the actual bug bounty participants. So I think they're going to be in the middle. It seems like the, the current trajectory is that both folks are kind of moving towards having similar standards for how they treat bug bounty participants and how they treat the bug bounty programs themselves. So I feel like it's good that there's more than one option out there. There's also, you know, Cobalt and everybody else in the space too. So it's, it's, I'm glad there's not just one big player. I'm very glad there's at least two big players and even better, hopefully three or four. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what other ways can you think of that aspiring pen testers can get legit legal experience? Well, it's hard because if you're, you know, pen testing is not, it's not generally a profession you can walk a straight path into. You kind of have to, you know, zig and zag into it coming from other backgrounds. You either have to, you already have to be good at something else first to be good at it, being a pen tester. You already have to know how web apps are being developed. You already have to know how networking stuff is done. Um, like I was trying to walk through with my, uh, one of my daughters, like, how to start doing bug bounty program. She got really excited. She went to go hack all the things. Like, okay, cool, let's do it. Um, she likes K-pop too. So it's like K-pop slash bug bounty time. And so <laughs> we're going through it all. And she's like, wait, what? So we'd spend time in like Wireshark and doing things and doing IP address stuff. And it didn't occur to me like how much stuff you have to know just to be able to even like really get your feet in the door for bug bounties. Because you have to know so much stuff just to get to the point that you've been testing a web app. 
or you can just type things in your browser, right? But if you want to get good at it and you actually want to be able to do more than just a web app, you have to understand all the other technology, DNS, IP addresses, uh, TLS, everything, everything else that's involved with the process. So I feel like um, for folks who really want to you know, go after security, whether it's defensive, offensive, um, you really need a good, strong understanding of low-level TCP IP protocols, things like DNS. Uh, you should be able to look at Wireshark and know what every packet does, basically. Um, you have to be able to write some code in some language. It doesn't have to be good code, but like write some Python, write some Ruby, write some Go, write something. Be able to automate something because so much of your work is going to be like, well, if only I could guess this magic number by trying it a thousand times, you can't rely on Burke to do everything for you. You have to be able to just write your own code here and there. So those two things, I think, are the basis for any strong security professional background, which is really understanding how things work at the low level uh, and then understanding how to script up and automate things. And of course, if you can also go into reverse engineering, you can also go into deep web application testing, SQL databases, um, you know, container security. There's a billion different ways to specialize these days. That's probably a big difference as well from kind of when we were growing up and getting into this is in the early days, there was no real specialization. There were some people who were better at like X25 versus something else uh, or this exploit or that exploit. But these days, there's so many different um, kind of niche categories you can focus on. You can be the best, you know, a container security person in the world. You can be the best SQL database exploitation person in the world, or Postgres, or MySQL, or cloud, but cloud, but AWS only. Like, there's lots of areas where you can go really, really deep these days and differentiate your skill set. Um, whereas previously, you kind of had to be good at everything to be able to have a job in this space. Yeah, I agree. Um, what are your thoughts on certifications? Do you think certifications are still valuable, or do you think practical, hands-on experience is, is best? Or what certs would you recommend as being some of the best out there for pen testers? Well, it kind of depends. What if you're there's some jobs where you need a certification because your clients request it. Um, you need to have an OSCP or CISSP or something like that just to be able to be considered for that job. So I can't really fault anybody for getting a certification if their employer requires it. it that it's just it's just an employment requirement. It's not going to help your skills in any way. Probably not. But it's going to um, help you get the job you need to you know build your life and make that your career, right? So, you know, more power to people, no matter what cert they get, it would help them get their job. Outside of that, though, with practical search, you sell the OSCP, uh, you've got like um, all the SANS, um, what they call it, like the GPEN for a good cert as well. Uh, there's not that many that are practical, though. So I feel like if you're kind of an autodidact, if you learn well by kind of teaching yourself, you're almost better off doing anything else, anything other than a certificate. Certificates aren't really going to help you um, uh, learn anything more than you learn yourself, I guess. But I would say go after CTFs, go after bug bounties, go, go get real world experience as fast as you possibly can. There are no gates anymore. The fact that we've got bug bounties and so many programs that are available for just jump right into means you don't have to mother may I. You can go straight into trying to hack a Fortune 500 company tomorrow and just using whatever you happen to currently know. Yeah, just get your written consent and off you go. You don't even need that. That's a great thing. The cool thing about bug bounty programs, so many companies just say, yeah, here's our scope. That's it. There's no like permission letter you have to get. It just blows me away that, like, you know, we grew up worried about people kicking down our doors, right? So (laughs) it's a different world now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So obviously there is an ethical line there where maybe these young pen testers want to just get on a site and start hacking away. Obviously, that's not the way you want to go. Do you know of any any sites or I guess what would be the first step for someone maybe coming out of high school or coming out of college? And I think they're actually teaching these courses in high school now. Um, but young kids really that want to just start getting to it. What would be your advice to, you know, where, where do you get started? Uh, I mean, hack the box, like all those CTS sites I mentioned before are pretty good. They're they're kind of like you can go look up, you know, answers for it if you get stuck someplace, which is kind of the nice thing about them. There's a there's a good answer to it. Um Bug bounties are awesome too when you want to go off the real world, just because it's so easy to get into and the requirements are pretty low. Um, but you definitely want to start off with kind of a 
uh, pre-canned environment that you know that there's a right answer to a given problem. The problem with like breaking into real world computers is there is no right answer. Hopefully, if the, if the company did everything right, you can't get into it, right? So <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where when you're first starting out, to build up your confidence, it helps if you start off with a CTF first or going to vulnhub.com and grabbing like one of the VM images off that and banging on that for a little bit, reading up on the guides for it, asking other folks who are getting involved. Like early on, having um, surrounding yourself with peers who are also at the same stage of learning as yourself helps a lot. So a lot of the forums and hack this site, for example, are great for kind of learning from your peers, getting a feel for how to solve the problems. Um, and then just talking to people who are in the in the industry doing the kind of work you want to be doing. Like, hey, what do you recommend? Or what was something that you learned a whole lot by, by working on? So organizations are in desperate need of a solid IoT vulnerability management approach. What would be your top recommendations? That's, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but I think first you should at least know where they are. <laughs> at least know how many devices you have in the first place and what networks they're on. Like if you see a whole bunch of like Apple TVs in your corporate network, like maybe you want to move this to a different segment. Maybe you want to put your PS4 in a different VLAN. Like one of the most surprising things about working at Rumble has been as we do all this work and we start measuring uh, inventory of all these different companies' internal networks, how many consumer devices are sitting in corporate lands these days? Like these aren't sitting in wireless guest networks. These aren't sitting like separate from the main production systems. You literally have like the main file server for the company with a PS4 plugged in next to it. Um, and that's just reality these days. So, I mean, I think segmentation is definitely a big challenge. Uh, the way to address that is one, figure out, do I have a PS4 plugged in next to my domain controller? <laughs> and two, if it is, let's move it someplace else. Like that kind of stuff. It's, it's little things like that, but just getting a handle on your inventory, I think is really important. You continue to stay very active in your business and developing Rumble. I'm just curious to know how has COVID affected you or disrupted your day-to-day professional workflow? I was born to be locked into a room for all my life. This is great. Uh, this, is, this is where I'm from, man. Like... <laughs> No, it's really, yeah. like, from a day-to-day work perspective, it's been um, obviously hard to hard in the family, hard in everyone else to you know limit our movements and stay inside, especially with a city that's uh, you know running out of hospital beds right now. So things are pretty chaotic. So I'm just really grateful that we have our health and you know we we do our best and we're able to work from home. So really grateful that I've got the option to work out of here and not on the road, not having to um, you know put myself and my family at risk all the time. So. Definitely saw an impact on customers though. Like um, we saw, um, you know, budgets freeze, saw hiring freeze, uh, especially around you know March through July or so last year. Everything basically froze up. Uh, one of our largest uh, customer segments was universities, and universities didn't really have a lot of funding available starting fall last year because they didn't know how many students they'd still have or which campus would be open. So just watching our customers be substantially financially hit by uh, COVID and the shutdowns has been rough, and we do our best to take care of folks. Uh, we gave out a bunch of free licenses to folks who are helping with the pandemic, PP suppliers, healthcare providers. Uh, we extended free licenses, discounted licenses, wherever we could to make things work. Uh, we had some folks saying, hey, we got to cancel our subscription. And we're like, it's okay. We'll cover you for a few months. Like, just come back whenever you're ready to talk again. Um, like, there's been a lot of folks who have been kind of chasing the ambulance and COVID and trying to, like, chase more money out of customers as a result of it. And we're just doing our best to, like, take a step back. We don't email our clients saying, hey, because of COVID. No, no, no. We're, we're here to help you out, not to add more noise to your buffer. So right. in general, I feel like we just try to be really empathetic with our customers and realize that they're having a really hard time and do our best to support them, whoever they have to be, wherever they are. Um, and just grateful that we're able to continue focusing on you know, developments and building the business, uh, even though we're, we're stuck at home. What changes have you seen or anticipate COVID will introduce to the threat landscape? I guess for us, the most obvious one has been universities are remote only, and most businesses have almost all their desktops have been moved to VPN connections. Uh, what's what's really interesting from that from our perspective because the way that we scan devices is agent based. We have like at least one system running a scan agent and that scans everything else from it, unauthenticated. 
uh, is that a lot of our customers have started scanning their corporate networks from the VPN or scanning their VPN networks from the corporate environment. And it's been kind of interesting to see how that maps out. One of the fun things we work on is a topology graph. Like, here's how all your networks are interconnected. It used to be you've got your corporate side, maybe a couple of sub like hubs and spokes kind of coming off them into one big grid. Now you have basically the corporate site, normal regional sites, and then every single one of your companies or your employees' home computers has two interfaces, your VPN connection and their home network connection, and maybe their Wi-Fi connection. So the amount of individual networks connected back to your corporate network is just, it's, it's ridiculous. Like a thousandfold increase, a lot of companies for the number of interconnections back into the corporate environment. Yeah. Would you say uh, most organizations out there need to rethink their infrastructure? Um, I think even folks that were sort of set up for remote work before have definitely had to like upgrade their capacities, change other new things. Um, I mean, the good news is it's really pushing a lot of trends that were um, that they sh- that should have been increasing anyways. Like kind of the beyond court model, where you're you're treating all your internal users like your external users in the first place, or just because you're on the internal network doesn't mean you have that internal privilege and access to the system. You still have to go through all your standard authentication portals and kind of proxies and so on. So I feel like it's a good opportunity for folks to really uh, accelerate the security programs that are probably already in the path of doing. And I also feel like, like as someone who enjoys working from home and has tried to as much as I can for the last 20 years, like I think it's great that more people are able to do that. Like, why do we need everyone driving back and forth downtown to go sit in a room in front of a desktop, right? I mean, it's nice to see your coworkers once in a while in the person in the flesh, but I don't know. I've always been of the opinion that I'm way more productive when I'm stuck in a box by myself somewhere. <laughs> I could trap myself in. I'm more productive. I, I work 24 seven now and. I don't mind it because I love what I do, but it's like, all right, well, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely harder to take a break now for sure. I feel like, especially like, a, like for about two years, it was just me at Rumble. So anytime a sport ticket came in or something blew up or a server went down, it was just 24 seven. So it was nice to some extent being stuck at home because it means I didn't have to worry about being like being halfway to a meeting when something blew up, right? So I'm always available, always on. But at the same time, like that's a path to burnout. You got to be really careful and start putting some limits in place or... You're not going to have a good time in a couple of years. It was going to be completely wiped out. And, you know, all the joy in life is gone at that point. I've gone through that a few times in my life and um, trying to avoid it, doing it for the third or fourth time. (laughs) Uh, I know the feeling. It's a time struggle sometimes. Okay. So we talked about the threat landscape. Let's talk about the bar landscape. When you visit a bar, what are you typically scanning for? As in, what is your go-to drink of choice? Uh, I'm so random. I drink all kinds of stuff, like especially like, you know, I'm trying to be healthier. I'll try to do like low carb stuff. I'll drink like basically champagne or vodka sodas or when I'm actually like feeling like I, I deserve, you know, can, <laughs> can deal with something a little more uh, heavy. I love Belgian beers. Uh, I love scotch. I love whiskey. So there's lots of stuff in between. Absinthe cocktails, almost anything. I'm not that picky of a drinker. I think. <laughs> nice. So COVID has had an impact on nightlife everywhere. And I'm sure under normal circumstances, the bar scene in Austin has got to be pretty insane. For out-of-towners like myself, what are some of the best places you would recommend there? There's a few places that have really, really good selections of particular type of liquor. So um, Pache down on 4th Street has an amazing scotch setup. They also have a really good absinthe setup. So if you want to try just weird liquor you've never heard of before or like a bottle you haven't seen in 20 years, um, I mean, they, don't, they probably don't have like Port Ellen or anything like that. But they do have like, you know, maybe absence that you never see in the U.S. otherwise. So I love bars that just have like a really interesting selection. Um, there's also a couple bars here that are sort of secret. Like you have to know the right thing and they're kind of a you know, speakeasy style. So there's one in town uh, that goes by the handle, the redheaded stepchild that if you can find the code to is great. Um, so there's definitely a lot of uh, little weird kind of corner bars. Um, uh, small Victory is another great local bar in town. These are all tend to like, you know, kind of small local places, but. They did. Um, they do really interesting things with their cocktails, with their mixers. Um, some of them do a really good job of like non-alcoholic drinks too. If you don't actually want to drink booze, they can make you a really awesome mocktail out of all like their handmade bitters and things like that too. So nice. I love those secret bars and speakeasies. 
What do you see as a bar's biggest vulnerability? A bar? Oh, obviously the patrons getting drunk and destroying the place. Physical vulnerabilities. Yeah. (laughs) I just heard last call. So I have one last question for you. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? Mm, Um, I mean, Rumble's a great name. (laughs) Hopefully there's no gastrointestinal uh, uh, (laughs) connotation on that. (laughs) Right. I don't know, maybe it's the shell code. That sounds nice. And maybe it'd be a you know, beach themed tiki bar with the shell code. That's awesome. I do love shells. So. <laughs> would that would the bar be on a beach, like a tiki bar, or would it be in Austin somewhere? Well, I, I like Austin. It's probably Austin someplace. Um, I think nice. beach themed bars are great, but you have to rebuild them every couple of years with the hurricanes. Is Austin becoming the new Silicon Valley 2.0? I hope not. I've been here since the 80s. And so, you know, it used to be a really broke, cheap college town full of like, you know, hippies and great music. And it's still got some of that, but it's definitely getting more, um, more metropolitan, more folks from out of state moving in. Um, Everybody from California is coming over, right? Yeah. Are you starting to see that? The, the, big, the, the, the biggest downside for us really for locals is that uh, property prices have been shooting through the roof because mm-hmm. you know, if you've got a, if the cheapest house you can buy in California is a million bucks, then you bring that money to Texas, you can buy a lot of houses in Texas for a million dollars. And no like all the central areas are just getting packed more of the locals getting pushed out to the outskirts. Um, so it's hard for Austin to keep kind of its soul because uh, so many new folks are moving to the center of town and that's really where a lot of the culture was. Um, but yeah. it's not bad. I feel like, you know, things change over time and, you know, the only constant is change, right? So we have this thing called Austin Hackers Anonymous. We've been running for uh, 13 years straight now with monthly meetings. Uh, I think we peaked at like 120 people per month showing up to it and everyone has to talk. Like there are no lurkers. If you show up, you have to talk your first time. Um, wow. And we used to do between like 15 to 20 fire talks every single month back to back. We've been doing that for years. So there's also like, you know, a DC 512, there's a 2600 group. There's a lot of other local, the lockpicking group here is awesome. So there's a ton of like hacker culture here in town that's amazing. And it's been a great group of people to hang out with and, you know, go bar hopping with and all that too. So when did you see the evolution of this, of, of Austin going this direction? Like when did it start becoming a, a major tech hub? Uh, really back in like the 80s. Um, there's really two parts to it. There's the hacker culture actually started before then. If you look at like uh, where a lot of the early like freakers and stuff were, like the Phoenix Project, all that stuff was actually here in Austin. Like nice. a lot of the, like Steve Jackson games getting raided for what they thought they're actually running like for cyberpunk and stuff like that. That was actually here in Austin as well. So a lot of like the early like old school like freaking slash hacking stuff is actually based in Austin, Texas, which is amazing. Um, and as a result, a lot of those old school like uh, security um, kind of counterculture folks are still around. Like, I remember going to a 20s kind of meetup when I was a kid and seeing Minor Threat there who, like, wrote, like, Tone Mode. I'm like, oh, my God! Like, <laughs> so it's really cool. So, like, that's one of the heroes I met early on. I was like, I use your tool all day long. And even with Rumble, we have, like, a visualization Rumble that's the Tone Mode Tone Map that was based on that, like, word dialing view. So, um, I love it. But it's, so as far as, like, the hacker culture, it's been here from the beginning. Having a big college campus here in town has been great for that. UT is a great source of folks coming in and learning stuff and sharing it. And just a really open, friendly community uh, in general. There's not a lot of jerks here, which is great. As far as the technology, the big thing that triggered that was a, a thing called Semitech back in um, late 80s, early 90s. Um, it was a group of chip manufacturers like silicon wafer manufacturers um, that were trying to build a new plant. And they went to San Antonio and San Antonio says, nah, we're good. We don't want to. So they came to Austin. Austin's like, yeah, sure. So that became Applied Materials. That became a Samsung, um, AMD. They're all really got brought here because of that Semitech uh, chip fab. That's what they call Silicon Hills. It wasn't about technology. It, was, or it wasn't about like the software side of technology, it was about the actual silicon manufacturing back there. Uh, and that eventually led to being you know, the home of Deja News for a while before Deja collapsed in the early 2000s. 
Um, you see, you know, we're never at anyone's headquarters, but we're always their second biggest office. So if you look at like where people want to be, you see like, you know, no matter who, though, I don't want to give, you know, rattle off too many names here, but like any major tech company usually has a sizable presence here in Austin because it's where their employees want to be. And it's got a huge amount of talent to hire from as well as just really good community for folks who, who move here. It's rare that you can walk down the street and you don't bump into another engineer. I'll walk around downtown for a meeting and um, on the way out, like one of two or three random hackers, like, oh, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen in a couple of weeks. Like, see you the next meeting. Like, it's just, it's that's that awesome. The city. So, yeah, and when the music scene's great and people tend to be pretty friendly. So, I think even if people move here from, you know, East Coast or West Coast, they try to adopt the kind of awesome attitude when they get here. Just a little less pretense, a little more friendly, kind of give people the benefit of the doubt, just be nice with people in general. So, it's definitely a kinder, friendlier city than most places I've been. Cool. Well, HC, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us and I wish you all the luck with Rumble. And real quick before we leave, would you mind letting us know where our listeners can find you online, what your social media footprint is? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, for all the Rumble stuff, it's rumble.run is the website. For my personal stuff, it's hdm.io. And then on Twitter, it's uh, hdmore or GitHub is just hdm. Thanks, man. Next time I'm, uh, I come down to Austin, man, we'll catch up for a drink. Looking forward to it, Chris. Hopefully the pandemic will be over soon and we can get back to uh, having a little more fun, right? <laughs> Definitely. Thanks, man. Take care. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.